What is up, guys? Welcome back to episode, what is it, 63? Something like that. 63? I believe that's right. I believe we're 63. 63 of Chatter from the Cheap Seats. Today, it's me, Sammy, and we have a special guest today, Glenn Geffner, who is the radio play-by-play announcer for the Miami Marlins. It was a blast. He was such an awesome guy to talk to. And, I mean, I cannot just – it was just so amazing. No words, Sammy. Do you have anything to say before we send it to the interview? Yeah, no. I, it was a really great experience being able to talk to this guy. Obviously, me and Jack um, are both into doing sports broadcasting because we're doing a podcast. Um, so this um, – Glenn Geffner – he was able to give us so many great insights about that. So if you're interested in sports broadcasting, 100% check it out. And then we also talked a lot of baseball in general. We talked, he's the Marlins play-by-play guy. We talked about the Marlins, a lot of the um, how great the Marlins have been and how exciting they can be in the future. And we talked a lot about stuff having, like, happening around the league, the rule changes, uh, some prospects. So it was a really fun conversation. I don't. I think no matter who you are, you should tune into this because it was a blast for us. It's going to be a blast for you guys. Um, really fun conversation to have with uh, Glenn Geffner. If you guys are baseball fans, if you're just sports fans, if you're just listening to this podcast for my shining personality and Sammy's Michael Scott poster in the my back. Michael Scott poster, yes. <laughs> whatever you are, listen to this interview it was incredible we talked about just his career in general we talked about baseball now we talked about the marlins we talked about their amazing pitching staff sixto sanchez who i really hope comes back soon because my fantasy team is not doing great but without further ado sammy let's send it to the interview we are joined by one of the radio voices of the miami marlins glenn geffner glenn how you doing I'm doing great, Jack. Good to be with you guys tonight. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. We're just going to be asking Glenn a lot of questions about his experience in sports broadcasting. And then we're going to be talking about some of the Marlins team uh, and how how they've been doing and how they have a really promising future. So that'll be fun to get into. But um, we'll start just start by taking us kind of through your journey, I guess, with sports broadcasting when you first started getting into it. Um, how you kind of started to find opportunities in sports broadcasting because Jack and I are both, um, you know, we're both kids with aspirations to possibly do that. So it would definitely be interesting to hear um, what you have to say. Well, I started out when I was a lot younger than you guys are even now. I didn't have quite the opportunities that you have today with the technology, but when I was seven or eight years old, I fell in love with sports. I fell in love with baseball, especially And I would watch and listen to and read everything I could possibly get my hands on regarding baseball in particular. Uh, And I used to go in my bedroom on Saturday afternoons when they would have the game of the week on NBC in a time before ESPN even. Uh, We didn't have access to every single game. Every Saturday, the best game in baseball that Saturday would be on national TV on NBC. And I get out my baseball cards. If the Red Sox were playing the Yankees, I get out my Red Sox cards, my Yankees cards. I'd line them up in the order of the starting lineups, and I would turn the volume down on the TV, and I'd broadcast the games using statistics on the back of the baseball cards that I had. Uh, You know, something I did for fun when I was growing up. Uh, I played baseball. I always enjoyed playing. But when I got into high school, there were no broadcasting opportunities for me at that time. Growing up in South Florida, it was the mid-1980s. When I got to college, I finally had a chance 
to audition for the student radio station. And fall quarter freshman year at Northwestern, I got involved with that thinking, hey, I haven't really done it in a professional way at this point, but I've broadcast World Series games from my bedroom. So I have as much experience as just about anybody. And I got involved with the student radio station from the very beginning of my freshman year. And over the course of four years at Northwestern, I was able to call football games, basketball games, baseball games. We did talk shows. We traveled with the teams. I did a lot of different things. I had great experience. Uh, and I really decided that's what I wanted to do. I was studying journalism. and I had a lot of journalism experience in high school and some internships, things like that. But I got the hands-on experience in college, not taking broadcasting classes, but broadcasting games, doing talk shows and things like that. Uh, and right out of school, I got an internship with what was at that time the Baltimore Orioles AAA affiliate in Rochester, New York, and wound up spending five years in Rochester, working my way up from the intern who would make mascot appearances to pay my bills, uh, to the PR director, to the number two broadcaster, the lead broadcaster, and eventually that got me to the major league. So after my time in Rochester, I was with the San Diego Padres for six years, went to the Boston Red Sox for five years, and now for the last 14 years, I've been with the Marlins. Having grown up in South Florida, this for me was a chance to come back home. And that's why we made the move back in 2008. Was that just such a cool experience for you? You know, you were all over the country. You were with the Red Sox. You were with the Padres. To be able to go home to the Marlins and have that be your broadcasting job, like, was that just such a stars aligned moment? It was very cool. And a lot of people wondered why I would leave the Boston Red Sox when I did, who at that time had just won their second World Series in four years in 2007. I was there when they won in 04, when they broke the curse of the Bambino, won for the first time in 86 years. I was there in 2007 when they won again. And right after that season, I left for the Marlins. But I had grown up in South Florida. And I grew up at a time before the Marlins even existed. When I was a kid, we had the Dolphins. We had University of Miami football and baseball. And that's basically it. We didn't have the Heat, didn't have the Panthers didn't have the Marlins. Uh, so to have a chance to come home, having grown up as a kid, dreaming that one day my hometown team would have, my hometown would have a major league team and to be able to broadcast for that team was a very cool opportunity. And it's a great place to raise a family down here. So it was a, a move that made a lot of sense for us at the time. Yeah. And so your first game, you know, we, you hear all the time, you know, talk about like players debuts. So for your like MLB broadcasting debut, like, do you have any memories from that day? How was, how were you feeling that day? Because that's so significant and, I can only imagine. I mean, that's got to be the coolest thing in the world. Well, I got eased into it because when I first went to San Diego, I went as the public relations director and I started filling in on television and radio broadcasts over the course of a couple of years for moving into the booth full time. So my first few games were some spring training games, some fill in games here and there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't remember specifically uh, anything about any of those games at great detail, other than the fact that, you know, once the game started, it dawned on me that, hey, I might be nervous and you should be nervous. That means you're excited. It means you want to do a good job. But it was a baseball game and it was something that I had thought about doing for so long. I'd done it in the minor leagues for a long time. So it was just a matter of once the game started talking about the ball game and, and really uh, no incredible first game memories. The first regular season game that I did, I do remember being a game where Bruce Bochy, who was the manager of the Padres, won his 500th game as a big league manager. He's a guy now who's on his way to the Hall of Fame and before too long, having recently retired with the Giants. And he may manage again still, but uh, whenever the time comes, he'll be on his way to Cooperstown. So I remember that my first game was Boach's 500th managerial win. And after the game, actually, he signed the lineup card. Rather than keeping it for himself from his 500th win, he gave me the lineup card from that day. And that's something I still have. It's a really special item for me. But uh, outside of that, you know, the game is the game. And if you've done it in AAA, you're doing it in the big leagues. You know, if you remember that, it's not really that much different. 
that's super cool that he gave you the lineup card. And when you're researching for a game, we know you said that, you know, obviously before your first game, you're going to be a little bit nervous, but the best way to combat that is good preparation, good research. So do you have a specific routine when you're researching a baseball game that, I mean, I'm sure by now you have, you have something that you kind of do every time you prepare for a game. That, that's a great point that you make, Jack, because it is, I tell students, so I talk to them all the time. It's like when you're preparing for a big test and you know, the test is going to be really hard, but if you've done everything you can to study, and if you went to class, took notes, you review your notes and, and you do the study guides, all that stuff, you go into the test or you go into, in this case, the ball game, feeling like you're ready to go. And, and that's why you're not nervous and you feel like you've done everything you possibly do. So I am a preparation freak. I do way more preparation for every single game than I could ever use. I have so much material night in and night out. Uh, I want to know everything there is to know about my team. I want to know everything there is to know about the other team as well. And, and some of that is reading and some of that is taking notes and some of that is crunching numbers and, and putting together all sorts of statistical things. But a lot of it is talking to managers and coaches and players and scouts and gathering knowledge over the course of many years and never knowing when something that somebody said to me maybe 15 years ago might make sense to use on this broadcast tonight. And I've been fortunate with the different teams I've worked with to be around some remarkable players and some remarkable teachers of the game. Uh, you know, my first six years in the big leagues were in San Diego. I worked with Tony Gwynn, the final five years of his career. And I always say I learned more baseball from Tony Gwynn than anybody I've ever been around. And to this day, something that Tony might've said to me back in 1997 is going to pop into my mind in the middle of a game and it'll make sense to use in this spot. So that's not the sort of thing that I did pre preparing for a game at 10 o'clock that morning, but it's something that I filed away over the years. And that's why when you do this for a long time, you build up that vast reservoir of knowledge. And it's a matter of figuring out how to apply things and when to apply things and, and knowing what you have when you're able to use it. But I do a ton of reading year round every day. I try to stay on top of every team across Major League Baseball. But then I'll really get locked in on the team that we're about to play next. Uh, and, and I'll put together... Uh, about 12 pages worth of five by eight cards, just on big picture notes about the team itself and individual players that we're going to play. I do statistical stuff every day for both the Marlins and the team we're playing. I do detailed notes on the starting pitchers every single day, uh, statistical trends, things like that. I don't use, unlike most broadcasters, I don't use media guides and I don't use the game notes the teams put on a daily basis. And the reason for that is my partner uses those. And the guys from the games on TV use those. And I want to have something different than what everybody else has. And I want to have something that interests me, not what somebody else tells me I ought to be interested in. I want to know what interests me. And I hope that that's going to be interesting to the majority of the people who are watching or listening. So I come with all my own stuff on a daily basis, whether it's statistical or anecdotal. Uh, you know, I like having one-on-one -on -one conversations with players and coaches and scouts and managers, people like that, general managers, different executives to get stuff that other people don't have. And I try to bring unique things to the broadcast every night. So that preparation, uh, you know, really, it never ends. So what's your approach? Because uh, you were talking about the importance of talking to players and coaches and just um, building relationships. So what's your approach um, to doing that? Is it like you set up calls? Is it just you kind of see them around? How does that work? And what's your approach to building those relationships? Well, it's changed a lot over the last year with COVID and limited access we have, obviously. 
under normal circumstances, you know, when you're around a team every single day as a broadcaster, you travel with them, you're on the buses, you're on the planes, you're in the hotel, you run into guys in restaurants, you're, you're around them all the time. You're down on the field for batting practice. You're in the clubhouse before batting practice every day. So it, it's a matter of having relationships that you build up over time with people and they get to know you, they get to trust you and they'll tell you stuff that maybe they wouldn't tell somebody else. Uh, but but I just like to be around as much as possible. You never know what you're going to see, what you're going to hear. You might see something that leads to you wanting to ask a question. And just standing around the batting cage, talking to guys casually, you know, you might notice somebody's working on something in particular. So you ask about that. And then when he comes up in the game and you see the guy who's been working going the other way at 430 in the afternoon, hit a rocket to right center field at 730 at night, you can apply what you just saw at the batting cage. So you can say, hey, I know he's been working on that with the hitting coach. We talked about it before the game today. It's really good to see it carrying over into the game tonight. Uh, so under normal circumstances, there's a lot of that. And the access that I have certainly uh, gets me a lot of that information. And in this era where there's so many websites and so many things written where every fan can read so much about teams, the one thing that fans don't have is daily access to the players and the coaches and the managers, which I do have. So I try to take advantage of that. That's why I bring you something different every night than what you already have. I don't want to give you the stuff you read in the newspaper this morning or you saw on Twitter at four o'clock this afternoon. I want something unique. Now, in this COVID world where we're not traveling with the team for the last year plus now, uh, where we're not on the field or in the clubhouse, where we're totally isolated. That's where the fact that I have really good relationships has really come to help me because what I'm able to do is call guys or text guys or do one on one Zooms with people, things like that. Uh, private messages on Twitter to get some information that I want. You don't want to burden somebody by calling the same person day after day after day. But every now and then, if something happened in the game last night with our shortstop, Miguel Rojas, I might want to ask him about it. I can text him or I can send him a, a message uh, and get an answer on that. I'll go one-on-one -on -one with our manager, Don Mattingly, with some regularity. Uh, you know, He does a Zoom every day pregame, and I'm a part of that, and I listen in on that. But when I want really good, unique stuff that I don't want somebody else to tweet out because I ask the question publicly – uh, I'll do a one-on-one -on -one Zoom with him, with the pitching coach, with the hitting coach, with the various players, and try to stay on top of things that way. Because for me, it's really important to bring unique things to the broadcast every night that nobody else has. Yeah, and um, you, you were talking about COVID. How was um, – you were talking about how that's impacted the relationships. But in terms of the game itself, broadcasting the game you are talking about, you guys hadn't been able to travel with the team. So how – because that, that's, you know, before COVID, probably unheard of almost. So how mm – -hmm. How has that impacted your coverage of the games? Well, obviously, when the team is at home, everything is totally normal in terms of being in the radio booth at now Lone Depot Park and looking down the field and calling a game. Nothing there has changed. But when the team's on the road now, we're broadcasting the games remotely off of a television monitor. Uh, and it's an interesting challenge. And, uh, you know, you get the hang of it after a while. You learn what the limitations are. You learn how you have to adapt your style a little bit to doing that. Uh, but it's hard. And I got to be honest with you, you know, it's hard to judge the depth of a fly ball off the bat. So when you really want to have a great home run call, when in a big spot, somebody crushes a ball to left center field. And when you're in the ballpark, you tell the second it left the bat, it's going to be a home run. When you're watching it on a monitor, you can't be that certain. You got to stay back a beat. So it takes away from some of the excitement of doing the game, certainly, but it is a unique challenge. And this is my 30th year in baseball. Now my 25th year in the major leagues, uh, and, you know, on a certain level, it's cool to be doing something very different last year and this year, but I, I can't say I prefer it to broadcasting the games live in the ballpark. There are certain challenges to it that you have to learn to work around. 
you're just very limited. You don't realize when you're watching a game on TV how little of the field you're actually seeing. And when I'm broadcasting a game, my eyes are darting all over the ballpark. I want to see where the infield is set up, where the outfielders are, who's up in the bullpen, who's in the on-deck circle. I want to see how big the lead the guy at second base has. You know, little things like that. I'm trying to constantly keep an eye on. But when I'm watching the game at a monitor, seeing exactly what the fan is seeing at home, I can't do any of that stuff. So when a ball is hit, I often have no idea if there's a shift on. And is the second baseman on the left side of the infield? Is somebody sitting right behind second base? So you got to sit back. You got to wait for that. So it certainly creates a whole new set of challenges. But, you know, as time's gone on, we've made some adjustments and kind of gotten the hang of it. But as soon as I say that, something will happen uh, on the next road trip that'll throw me for a loop, I'm sure. You know, you mentioned earlier that when you were at Northwestern, you know, you call basketball, you'd call football, you call baseball. Is it challenging? And what what do you do when you're facing a sport that maybe you don't know as much about? For example, for my high school, I have to call lacrosse games. And personally, I don't know much about lacrosse or baseball. I can kind of rely on all the information that I've known just playing baseball throughout my entire life. But when you're asked to call, call a sport, maybe like lacrosse or maybe even boxing or something of that mm-hmm. nature, what do you rely on? Well, that's a great question. And, and I'll say this, uh, particularly when you're starting out, I think it's important that you do as many different sports as possible. You become as versatile as you possibly can be because you never know where the opportunity might come. And somebody might say, hey, Jack, we need somebody to do volleyball. Are you ready to do volleyball? And you may have never done a volleyball game before, but you got to figure that out. And you want to make it work somehow. So, so I admire the fact you're doing a lot of different sports. I think that's really important to do. The first thing I would say is to watch and listen to as much of it on TV or the radio as you possibly can. Get a feel for the pace. Get a feel for the terminology. Uh, so you sound like you know what you're talking about. Uh, talk to coaches. Talk to players. Learn as much as you can about the strategy and what you should be looking for on the field when you're broadcasting the game. And then if you're working with an analyst who knows the sport better than you do, then really rely on that analyst for some of the pure X's and O's type stuff. And you as the play-by-play broadcaster uh, concern yourself where the ball is on the field and, and who's got possession, who scored the goal. Lean on your analyst a little bit more heavily if he or she has more expertise in the sport itself than you do. But, uh, you know, I would say start by doing what all of us did, which is watching and listening to a lot of it on TV, but watch and listen with a different kind of ear, not just watching and listening to see who scores and who wins, but to really pay careful attention to the broadcasters and to how the broadcasters call the game, the words they use, the pacing, things like that. And, and the more you hear, the more you see, the more natural it'll become for you. And that's something that you mentioned the pacing in the game that I'm finding is one of the most challenging parts about play-by-play. You know, in baseball, it's a little bit easier because you can sort of allow the beauty of the game to pace itself. You know, it's a little bit slower moving, but when you're doing a sport, maybe like basketball or lacrosse, that is a little bit more fast-paced. You know, you don't want to just be calling out, you know, and Smith passes it to Johnson and Johnson passes it back to Smith. You know, you don't want to call out everything that happens. So how do you allow your pacing to develop when you're calling maybe something that's a little bit more faster-paced? Well, it's funny, the, the fact that baseball is slower paced to me makes it more challenging because you have a lot of time to fill. The ball's not in the air. That's where all your preparation comes in. And that's where you need to have, whether it's an anecdote or a story, a story to tell or statistic to use, things like that. There's a lot more time to fill in baseball than in the other sports. And while I haven't done nearly as much football or basketball or anything else over the years, 
Uh, when I did do some of those sports earlier in my career, I found them easier to do simply because it's like riding a bicycle. Once you get going, you just kind of get on a roll and you get swept up in the game and you don't stop until the final buzzer sounds. So, uh, you know, particularly when you're on the radio, you've got to do that description because you have to remember the fact that you are the eyes of the listener. And if you don't say something, it didn't happen as far as the listener goes. So that description is so important. And when I listen to young broadcasters, the first thing I listen to is how do they paint the picture? Can I close my eyes and feel as though I'm watching the game? Do I know what the uniforms look like and what the weather is like, which way the wind is blowing and where the ball is on the field and who's moving left to right, who's moving right to left, things like that. Uh, so when, when you're doing basketball, when you're doing football, there is so much description that really has to go into it. Now, the, the step there that you take, though, is in being able to have a broad enough vocabulary where you're switching up the way you say things. It's not just Smith passing to Jones, Jones passing to Davis, Davis finding Thompson. You got different verbiage. And that's why you, know, like you listen to Doc Emmerich do hockey, and he's such a poet, and he never uses the same word twice, it sounds like, over the course of a broadcast. Uh, and that's the more experience you get, the more you listen. And you know, people talk about if you want to be a great writer, you've got to read great writing. I feel like if you want to be a great broadcaster, you've got to listen to great broadcasters and you just pick things up and not to copy, not to steal. But but you hear things that that will register with you and that you'll apply in doing your job the way you want to do it. And I always tell people, don't just listen to the broadcasters for the teams that you follow most closely. Listen to all different broadcasters, TV and radio. Get to hear different styles and you'll hear things you like. You may hear things you don't like, but by osmosis, some of that stuff is going to kind of enter into what you do on a regular basis. It'll make you a better broadcaster. Absolutely. And, you know, now we're going to go into a little bit more of the Marlins focused part of the podcast. Cause I have like, I don't know. I have a weird obsession with the Marlins. I think they're so fun to watch. They're sort of my second favorite team. We did a segment on the podcast a couple of weeks ago where we talked about our favorite team to watch outside of our favorite team. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had the Marlins. I think the, the entire Marlins starting rotation is just awesome to watch. They have like three guys that they're like a hundred mile an hour sinkers, you know, Sixto Sanchez, you know, Cine Alcantara, they're Pablo Lopez. They're so fun to watch. So just going into, let's start at last season, you know, a Marlins team that didn't have high expectations and even with the expanded playoff, you know, still making it to the expanded playoff. And even, I'm sorry, Sammy, winning a series against the Cubs. Yeah, sorry about know, that, Sammy. Yeah, must have been such an accomplishment. You know, just take us through that season. Well, it was a weird year, obviously, because at one point, you didn't know if there was going to be a season at all. And then you didn't know when it was going to start or how long it would be or what it was going to look like. Or once you started, would you make it even to the finish line? which when they started on July 24th, I thought it would take a miracle to get to the finish line with everything going on in the world. And as the Marlins found out after only three games, uh, you might need some help along the way because they got shut down for eight days right after playing the season opening series against the Phillies. So when you mentioned that there were very low expectations for the Marlins last year, uh, externally, certainly that's true. But internally, I think guys felt like they had a chance. And then when you got to the abbreviated season, people thought, you know what, maybe we have even a better chance going into just a 60-game season in part because of our youth, in part because it only takes one really good hot stretch to, to make you a contender in a 60-game season. And one bad stretch could knock a really good team out of contention, uh, as teams like the Nationals, for example, saw last year. 
the Phillies also. So, uh, you know, I, I think when new ownership took over at the end of the 2017 season, they laid out a plan. They said, look, we're going to make some very unpopular decisions. We understand that. And what that meant was trading Christian Yelich, trading Giancarlo Stanton, trading D Gordon, trading Marcelo Zuna, among others. Uh, but we have a plan to build through player development and scouting. And over time, we're going to win here. And we're not just going to win once like the Marlins did in 1997. Then they fell back. Then they rebuilt. They won in 2003. Then they fell back, didn't make the playoffs again until last year. We want to build a team that every year goes to spring training thinking it's got a chance to make the playoffs. And that's a hard thing to do because, you know, a couple of teams have done it. The, the Yankees certainly are in that position. Uh, in the last few years, the Braves have been in that position. They had been that way for 14 years in a row for a long period of time. Uh, the Red Sox are a team like that. The Dodgers certainly in recent years have been like that. But there aren't many teams that go to spring training every single year expecting to be in the playoffs. And that's what they're trying to build here. It's going to take time. And they're, they're getting there. But they're still a long way away. Many of the top players are still in the minor leagues in this organization. So you mentioned the rotation. Uh, you know, Sixto Sanchez is hurt, hasn't thrown a pitch yet this year. He's exciting as heck. But Trevor Rogers is another rookie pitcher. Not many people are talking about, but he's off to as good a start as any pitcher not named Jacob DeGrom in all the baseball this year, it seems like. You mentioned Sandy Alcantara is off to a great start. Pablo Lopez off to a great start. Uh, they need to get Sixto back. They still need another pitcher or two for that rotation. And they've got some young arms in AA and AAA who are off to good starts who are going to be a big part of the future. Uh, and then it's a matter of, filling in the position players and most of the position player talent is still in double A AA and triple A. Some of it's working its way up here. And we saw some guys get their feet wet a little bit last year, but there's a lot more coming, but to your point about it being an exciting team to watch, they've wanted to bring in athletes, dynamic talents and do a lot of different things. Uh, so you have a, a second baseman like jazz Chisholm, who's a natural shortstop. Who's playing second base now because there already is a shortstop Miguel Rojas He's got power. He's got speed. He's a terrific defensive player. Uh, you got outfielders who can play all three positions. If you draft a bunch of center fielders, you can move somebody to left and somebody to right. And you got three great defensive outfielders. If you develop a bunch of shortstops, you can move a guy to second base, move a guy to third base, have great defenders all around the infield. So that's what they're trying to do. It's going to take some time. And certainly it's a brutally tough division with teams that have won a lot in recent years that have a lot of money to spend also. But this team's coming. So do you, so you were talking about like the lofty goals, you know, when Jeter came in, the new ownership, do you think, you know, the unpopular decisions of, you know, trading Yelich and getting rid of Stanton and all of that, do you think those are going to pay off in the next few years? Or, or do you think it's even further down the road? No, they're going to pay off in the next couple of years without question. But here's the thing. Some of those guys were Marlins for as long as eight years. They were all together for five years. In that five-year window, Jose Fernandez was part of this team as well, whose passing really is what kind of set off the whole need to rebuild entirely. Because once you lost that frontline ace, a legitimate number one ace, that changed the entire dynamic around this team. Uh, but, but those guys, for the five years they were together, never once even finished 500. So for all the individual talent you had, those guys never coalesced as a unit. They never came close to making the playoffs, that group of guys. Uh, so when a Stanton would get hurt, you didn't have anybody to plug in. There was nobody in AAA. You had no depth. When you lose Jose Fernandez, tragically, you don't have anybody that's going to step into the rotation and fill that void or come anywhere near filling that void. Uh, same thing when Christian Yelich went down or when Ozuna missed some time. You didn't have anybody to step in. So the goal was to build organizational depth, waves of talent. So you've got talent at the major league level, 
And every guy in the big leagues knows there's a guy in AAA coming for my job who's really, really good. And every guy in AAA knows there's a guy in AA who's coming for my job who's really, really good. And that's what they've done with the international signings they've made, with the trades they've made, with the draft picks they've made over the last three, four years. They've really transformed this organization. It was either, depending on who you believe, either 29th or 30th in all of baseball in terms of farm system rankings when they bought the team. It's now top three, top five in all the rankings. You've seen some of those guys begin to graduate to the big leagues. You know, Jazz Chisholm looks like a rookie of the year. Uh, you've got Trevor Rogers, looks like a rookie of the year. Sixto Sanchez, had he not gotten hurt, was a front runner for rookie of the year going into this season. Tremendous young talent in AAA and in AA coming too. So uh, it's an exciting time. And I think it won't be long before people realize, and I think people down here already do, they had to make the moves that they made. And yes, this organization is going to be in a much better place for the long run than it ever was with all that tremendous individual talent they used to have. Yeah, and you were talking about, you know, so many incredible athletes on this team. You know, you have Jazz Chisholm, Miguel Rojas, and then obviously the stacked rotation. Out of all of these, you know, future stars, who do you think is going to turn in to like the MVP caliber um, or, you know, maybe even multiple MVP caliber guys, but... Mm -hmm. Who do you think is going to be the brightest star out of this young crop of players that Miami has? I'm going to mention somebody who's not spent a day in the big leagues yet. Uh, J.J. Blade, an outfielder who was the Marlins' first-round pick two years ago. He's taken fourth overall out of Vanderbilt. He had led the nation in home runs at Vanderbilt, playing against high-level competition in the SEC. He led Vanity to the College World Series championship his junior year, right uh, as he was getting drafted. Uh, this is a guy who is the complete package, not just a home run hitter. He's a really good hitter who hits for power guys can hit a ton of doubles, a lot of homers hit for high average can play all over the outfield. He's a, he can play center field. If you need him to, he's a strong defender, good range. He's got a good arm. He can play right field. If you want him out there. Uh, and he's got the demeanor that to me, you need to be a consistent performer at this level. So JJ Blade among the position players is that guy for me. And I might surprise you if uh, you want to know on the pitching front, everybody would say Sixto Sanchez. I think the guy, I see with the highest ceiling doesn't have the best pure stuff, but he's got the best complete package. That's Trevor Rogers. Who's in the rotation now who had some ups and downs last year when he made his debut with seven starts. Uh, he learned a lot from the mistakes he made last year. He went home, he worked, he learned from his mistakes. He got better. And since the first day of spring training this year, he's looked like a different guy. He's off to a remarkable start. And because he's got terrific talent, but also because he's got the work ethic. He's got the mind for the game. He's got the desire to be the best. You don't always see that with the most talented guys. He's got that complete package. And that's why, for me, Trevor Rogers is the pitcher who I think may have the highest ceiling of all these guys. That's really interesting about Trevor Rogers. And, you know, you brought up a little bit earlier Jose Fernandez. You know, that was that was one of baseball's biggest tragedies. He's, he's a guy that when he passed away, you know, everybody remembers exactly – exactly where they are at that time so when you got the news that jose fernandez passed was that like that must have been just such a tough moment for you being close to the team it was and being close to jose i met jose the day he signed his first professional contract when he came to miami uh and i guess it would have been 2011 june of 2011 met him at the ballpark interviewed him that day uh was able on a night off to get up to jupiter and watch him make his high a debut in the florida state league interviewed him several times in the minor leagues when he was in spring training, when he finally got to the big leagues, had a little bit of a relationship with him already. And then to watch him burst onto the scene and do what he did at the age of 20 in 2013 and become the superstar that he was 
Uh, then did more Tommy John surgery very early in his career, come back from that even better than ever. Uh, this is a guy, like I was talking about Trevor Rogers, not only had the highest of high-end talent, but had that desire to be the best, had the unbelievable work ethic. He was such a good guy. He treated fans so well, treated everybody so well. Uh, so it was absolutely devastating. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, we were supposed to wrap up a series against the Braves on that Sunday. And I drove to the ballpark. And as I normally do, pulled into my parking space. That was then Marlins Park at Lone Depot Park. And I always jump on Twitter really quick just to see if anything's happened over the course of the 45 minutes I've been in my car before I walk into the ballpark. And it was on Twitter where I began to see little things that made me wonder if something was going on. Then all of a sudden I saw that it was official. And then seconds after that, my phone started ringing. People from the Marlins, media people, uh, different people in the Marlins family wanting to figure out what I knew, to share what they knew, and to put together a plan of attack for the day and the days ahead. Uh, and I never actually got out of my car at the ballpark that day. I sat in my car for about two and a half hours in the parking garage at Marlins Park mostly talking on the phone to various people who were calling or people I called, uh, you know, called my wife to share the news with her. She was a huge Jose fan, called my kids uh, who, who were at home. My wife was out. My kids were at home. And, uh, you know, then eventually there's nothing to do with the ballpark. The game was canceled. Eventually, after about two and a half hours, just drove home to, to spend the day with my family and to kind of mourn together because it was such a personal loss for everybody. And that's why uh, you know, it was good that the players were together and they were in the clubhouse and they were able to mourn together. And, and then the next night I had to come back and play that game against the Mets, the first game back where people may remember some of the pregame ceremonies and some of the emotion of that night. And, and it was good that everybody was together and was able to mourn that loss together. But then we had to go out on the road for the final week of the season. And that was the longest week ever. And uh, by the time it was over, everybody just wanted to and needed to get home and just get away and be with their families and sort through what they were dealing with emotionally with their families. It, it was a really, really crazy time. And when everybody came back the next spring, it was very different. Uh, it took a long time for people to stop asking the questions of all the players. And even of people like me, you know, how are you handling it? How's it different? Uh, and it was, it was an absolute tragedy. And certainly the loss of everybody who died in that accident is a huge tragedy. And some things that came out later, you know, certainly alter your perspective on what happened a little bit. But, uh, you know, I remember the Jose who I knew, and it's really hard for me or anybody who knew him intimately around the ball club to believe some of the things that came out afterward. Uh, look, if they're true, they're true. There's no denying that. But uh, we have so many wonderful memories of Jose. And uh, for me, he'll go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, what ifs in baseball history. Had he lived and pitched a full career, what might he have done? He might have broken every record, might have won six or seven Cy Youngs or, or even more than that, the way he was going. And because of the attitude, and the desire, the want to be the best, he could have been unbelievably special. Yeah, so tragic. And it really shows you just how much of a family kind of becomes how the relationships, it seems, um, just really develop. And you know, I, I don't know if it was the day after, um, but where they were all wearing his jersey and D. Gordon. The next night. Yep. The next night. Yep. I mean, how was that just being in the ballpark that night? Because that's one of the most powerful baseball moments. Um, I mean, really, since I've been a fan, since I've been alive. So, I mean – just how was it being in the ballpark that day? What were some of the emotions, uh, you know, in, in the broadcast booth, on the field, in the stands? Because what a powerful moment that was. 
people ask me all the time about the most memorable games I've called over the years. And I was lucky to call World Series games in Boston, World Series championships in Boston. But uh, the first game I will always think of will be that night against the Mets, the first night back. And it's the saddest night of my professional career, certainly one of the saddest nights of my life. And it's a night you wish would have never happened. But you think back to even before the game started, uh, and you mentioned all the players wearing the Jose Fernandez jerseys, number 16 in the back. Uh, all the Mets players prior to the start of the game, after the moment of silence, walking across the field to embrace all the Marlins players. Uh, it's a fraternity. And you often forget that with the competition and with rivalries and, and teams, you know, trying their best to beat the guys on the other side. Uh, everybody in that Mets dugout could entirely relate to what the Marlins were going through because because they know there but for the grace of God go I or, or go, you know, somebody that matters to me. Uh, and so first to see that emotion, that brotherhood was really neat. Then you mentioned the D Gordon moment. D comes up to home plate. And uh, originally he's a switch hitter who would have batted left-handed against uh, uh, Bartolo Colon was the start of that night for the Mets. But he came up and he hit right-handed in a Jose Fernandez stance. He copied Jose's stance uh, and he took the first pitch of the game. Then he turns around, gets into his regular stance. And D Gordon, who is not a home run hitter, Hit what he said was the longest home run of his life. He has no idea where it came from. There were things you saw that night that uh, if you don't believe in a higher authority, it makes you wonder a little bit about, about who's driving everything. Uh, Justin Bohr, big lumbering first base for the Marlins, hit a triple in that game, which is something you don't see all the time. Uh, the Marlins were able to win a very exciting ball game that night. Uh, the emotion was unbelievable. When D hit that home run and you saw how he responded, you saw how the dugout responded, uh, my partner, Dave Van Horn, and I just got overwhelmed. We were in tears in the radio booth, uh, just trying to describe what we were witnessing. You couldn't help but cry being in the ballpark. Every in the park was in tears that night. And uh, it was a very unique moment. And like I said, one that I wish I would never have experienced, but certainly one that I'll never forget. And uh, hopefully one that nobody ever, ever has to go through again. I mean, that that just must be so crazy because the amount of times, you know, I've just seen that D Gordon home run. I mean, I must have watched it. 15 or 20 times by now. That's just, that's just, I mean, words cannot express what that moment was like. Cause you said, if you don't believe in a higher power at that point, cause he said, you're right. He's never hit a home run that far. And that was, that was crushed, but let's move on now on a little bit of a lighter note to some more, more current day around the league baseball. So just what are some storylines that are catching your eye? throughout the early baseball season, just around the league? Oh, good question. Uh, you know, I think the biggest thing going into the season is how teams are going to adapt going from 60 games to 162. And I think you can't help but notice all the injuries we've seen early going this year. A lot of soft tissue injuries. Guys who started up in spring training last year, got shut down, got started up again, played 60 games, shut down, came back now a full spring training and now starting a full season, the marathon of 162 again. Uh, you're seeing a lot of hamstrings and groins and things like that. And I think that's going to be a story throughout the season. How teams handle their pitching staff is going to be a story throughout the season. Uh, I, I think that's the biggest thing. You're keeping an eye on offense uh, with this supposedly new baseball. You know, I can't say that with the naked eye. I've seen a dramatic difference so far. But I remain one who, who's not thrilled about the direction the game has taken offensively with the three true outcomes. Everything's either a home run a walk or a strikeout. Uh, I like to see balls in play. I don't like walks and strikeouts. I think it's a lot more exciting when the ball is in play. I think it's more exciting for fans, for viewers, for listeners, for broadcasters, for players. 
It uh, doesn't mean I want to see everybody get a hit. I want to see great defensive plays. But when guys are striking out and walking, you're not seeing great defensive plays. Uh, so I'm intrigued to see some of these rule changes that are being implemented and experimented with the minor leagues this year, whether it's limiting shifting or altering the way you hold runners on base, things like that, that are designed to potentially increase the amount of offense that you're going to see in baseball moving forward. Because I do think as much as I love a good old fashioned pitchers duel, I want to see the ball in play. I don't want to see so many strikeouts, so many walks. Pitching has never been better than it is right now. You've never had more pitchers throwing harder, striking out more hitters than right now. You know, 2018 was the first year in history that you saw more strikeouts than hits in Major League Baseball. And that number's gone up. That gap has widened every year since. But the gap between the end of last year and the start of this year is up exponentially. You're going to see so many more strikeouts and hits this year that you're not going to believe it. And to me, that's not entertaining. And you're going to lose fans. You're not going to add new fans like that. It's just not as compelling a product to watch. So baseball's got to figure some things out. And I think there are ways to do it. You know, I used to consider myself a traditionalist. And there are people who say, I never want to see the DH in the National League. I'm a traditionalist. I want the pitchers to hit. And I never want to see a three batter minimum or a man at second base start extra innings. I'm a traditionalist. I don't want to change anything. You know, I love baseball. And I used to say I was a traditionalist. What I've come around to, though, is thinking I'm actually somebody who loves the game, who wants what's best for the game. And what's best for the game may not be doing things exactly where you've done them for the last 100 plus years. There might be some areas where you can adjust a little bit and it'd be better for the game. It'd be better for the players, for the fans. Uh, and so I, I'm intrigued to see what happens with all these experiments going on in the minor leagues this year and how they might uh affect what we're doing at the big league level in the years to come because i do think there are some things we're going to need to change because it's a critical time for baseball right now you know the viewership is down attendance is down the number of young fans getting into the game is down number of young people playing the game is down and that's not a great place for baseball to be right now so we got to find some ways to fix this so would you say that you're a fan of all these new rules no there are so, so which not all of them how about the the second base uh Starting in the tenth inning, because you know what, no, I, go ahead. On both ways, I you know as a Cubs fan, you know we've had some close games lately, especially in the Dodger series um, a few days ago. So we've had to go both ways for us. So, are, are, would you say you're a fan of the tenth inning rule? At the start of last year, I was adamantly against it. Then I watched it play out, and I've actually become a fan of it for a couple of reasons. One, nobody likes eighteen inning games. I think that's the bottom line. If you're in the ballpark. Or if you're watching on TV and the game goes to extra innings, you say, hey, I've got work tomorrow. I've got school tomorrow. I got to go to sleep. I got to get home. A lot of people leave the ballpark as soon as the ninth inning ends. With this situation now, when you go to the 10th inning, you move to the edge of your seat because you know something is about to happen. Somebody's going to score in the 10th inning. And if they don't, it's going to be exciting the way you keep this team off the board with a man starting at second base with nobody out. So uh, there's strategy to it. Do you bunt the man over in the top inning as a visiting team? Do you play for just one run? I say the answer to that is no, uh, because then if you score just the one run, all of a sudden you've got the winning man at the plate to start the bottom of the 10th inning. you got the tying man already at second base, nobody out. It's really easy for the home team knowing they just need one run to tie the game in the bottom of the inning. So uh, I've come around on that. I think it adds a lot of excitement to the game. And it keeps you from playing those 18 inning games that nobody makes it to the end of that. You blow your bullpen out. You've got to send two guys to triple a the next day to bring two fresh arms up the next day. Players don't like that. They don't like getting sent down for no reason, except that you need arms. 
So last year, I think he saw two games go 13 innings, nothing beyond that. And I think that's good. It's compelling. It's exciting. So uh, I've come around on that. Although I, for a couple of years, had a proposal that's different than that one for tie games. Let me know what you think about this. You play the 10th inning like normal. You play nine innings, you're tied, go to the 10th inning. You don't start with the man at second base. Just play the 10th inning. If you're still tied after 10, I say, and this is kind of crazy outside the box, but I've said for a couple of years, time to play home run derby. I love it. Each team, each team picks three guys. They each get five swings. If at the end of the 15 swings, you're still tied, then you pick a fourth guy. Still tied, pick a fifth guy. For me, nobody leaves the ballpark. To me, the MLB network cuts in. Hey, the Nats and Marlins are going to home run derby in Miami. Let's head out to Lone Depot Park and check this out. And here's where their strategy involved in it because of the way I propose this. To be eligible for the home run derby, you had to be in the game at the end of the 10th inning when regulation play ended. So if you have a, a slugging first baseman who you take out for defense in the ninth inning, you don't have him for the home run derby. You got to leave him out there if you want him for the home run derby. So, uh, I would suggest that. I know it's never going to happen, though. So in the in the meantime, my constellation price, I can live with this man at second base rule. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've, I've kind of heard the home run derby thing, like, hypothetically thrown out. It's like a shootout in hockey, kind of. Right. Very, it's exciting. I mean, it's It would keep fans in the ballpark. I remember um, talking about the long games. My only game at Marlins Park, or now Lone Depot Park, but um, – I, it was a Cubs Marlins game, right? Like opening weekend, twenty. That's exactly right. Like yep. seventeen innings, I believe, and I think the Marlins walked it off. Yeah, it's exactly right. Miguel yeah. Rojas had the game-winning hit. It was yeah. the third game of the season. You're exactly right. Uh, and did you stay to the end? I did stay. Oh, I was not leaving. Because <laughs> you were from out of town, you didn't have to go to school the next day. Uh, your family didn't have to go to work the next day. I'm guessing. <laughs> Uh, but how many people were there at the end of it? Not many. It was almost, I mean, not, not huge capacity, not, not huge uh, numbers to start the game, but even less, I think, in right. this beginning, uh, probably less than like six, 7,000 people did. I mean, not even. I bet if that. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember that game. I remember doing a, a 21 inning game the Marlins and the Mets played on a Saturday afternoon. Thank God it was an afternoon game, at least not a night game in New York many years ago. Uh you know, there's there's some novelty to that. There's a little bit of fun and excitement to that, but uh, not much. And it can wreak havoc with the pitching staff. It, it can ruin a ball club. You know, it can it can ruin a catcher. Uh, you got to burn through both your catchers, probably. Yeah. Uh, it leads to roster changes the next day, roster moves. So uh, to answer your original question, I can live with the new rule the way it is, but I'd like to see that home run derby. And I know one of the independent leagues is going to implement that this year, although not with my rule about the eligibility for it at the end. And I think they're doing it right after the ninth inning, not giving you an extra inning, the 10th inning, you try to play it out. I love the home run derby. I mean, right. I, I am getting flashbacks, though. Or not flashbacks. I'm getting premonitions of, you know, Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, right. and Luke Voigt all going up for the home run derby. And I'm just thinking, reading Twitter the next day, Aaron Judge has a strained oblique. Luke Voigt has pulled his <laughs> hamstring. But, I mean, I, I love that. That sounds... Awesome. And I will say this about extra inning games, you know, they're definitely not fun. Like if it gets past the 10th inning, like, like, you know, a regular season, 10th inning, 10 inning baseball game is fun, but past the 10 in 10th inning can get long, but a super long postseason game is a lot of fun. I remember Nats giants. When I was like eight right. years old, you know, right. 17 innings. You were, you were like an inning away from position players pitching in a postseason game, but Totally yeah. agree with you 
on regular season. And we saw it in the World Series a few years ago. Was it the Red Sox Astros, I think, or Red Sox Dodgers played a 16 or 18 inning World Series game? Yeah. Uh, and, and boy, that's exciting, no doubt. But if you think about a position player on the mound in the determining innings of a World Series game, that's not that's ideal for fun. anybody. And especially the team that has to lose a game that way. Uh, so, you know, you talking about the Cubs. I watched that game the other night against the Dodgers. It was exciting. I stuck with it because I knew, boy, nobody scored the 10th. This is crazy. You know, and then you get to the 11th inning. And uh, it was a fun game to watch because you were on the edge of your seat from the very first pitch of extra innings. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely exciting. I mean, I think since it's a new thing right now, I think it's easy for a lot of people, including myself as a Cubs fan, say, oh, well, you know, we would have won if they didn't have the rule or, you know, and then the days that it helps you out, you know, you don't really say anything. But I think as we start to get used to it, I mean, it, it's just exciting. And it it does limit those long games, which can be fun sometimes. But in other times, it's just, you know, you're staying up till two in the morning and you're going to be super tired the next day. So, mm-hmm. well, look, and, and for people who say I'm a traditionalist, I don't like it. Well, next time your team gets into the playoffs by winning a wild card spot. You know, the wild card didn't exist. You go back before 1969, you didn't even have the two divisions in each league, then later three divisions in each league. You had one team would win the American League, one team would win the National League, and those teams would play in the World Series. There were no playoffs until 1969 even. So there's been a lot of evolution, a lot of changes to the game. Uh, so, you know, I think as times change, the game has to evolve and keep up with the times. And we're living in a very unique time now where people watch the game differently, uh, through social media, things like that, shorter attention spans. You've got to find a way to bring the game to fans in a digestible way that they're going to enjoy and that they're going to seek out because otherwise the entertainment world is just going to pass you by. And and so I do think that there are going to be some more changes coming. I don't like the three batter minimum rule. You asked if I like all these new rules. Um, I don't like rules that change the way the game is fundamentally played or managed. If you've got a couple of good lefties in your bullpen, that's an advantage for you to go situation like that. You shouldn't be penalized for that. I agree. Me, I don't want to see the shift get banned. If you've got the data and you know exactly where this guy hits the ball 63% of the time, you want to put somebody there. I don't, you should be penalized for being smart. Uh, so I don't like limiting visits to the mound, for example, you know, to me that the way the game is played, managed, you know, that, that doesn't, that's not a deal breaker for me, limiting visits to the mound, but when you're getting into stuff that changes the way a manager approaches the game, the way players play the game, that's a problem for me. Cause I still think for all the problems baseball has, the game itself is really, really good. And uh, sometimes I think baseball just kind of gets in its own way and, and you scream so much about uh people at the highest levels of the game talking about, hey, the games are too long, they're too slow, the pace of play this, the pace of play that, and it's like you create this problem for you. Nobody complains about going to the movies and the movie being too long. But, you know, uh, the, the ball is in the air in baseball more than the ball is in the air in football, for example. But people talk about how exciting football is, how boring baseball is. So, you know, I think a lot of it's your perspective on things. Are, are there things they can do better? No doubt. I've talked for years about limiting the amount of time between innings. If you took 30 seconds out of every commercial break, every half inning, you're saving nine minutes. Well, it's huge TV money. Well, you know what? You can do in-game advertising now. You can show a thing like, like Fox does where they jump in 
between pitches with a live ad that runs for 15 seconds that people don't actually fast forward through or run to the bathroom or to the kitchen during. They actually see that ad or you can scroll something on the screen. You play the World Cup, an entire half of the World Cup without a single commercial break, the biggest sporting event in the world. How come Major League Baseball has got to have five minutes of commercials every single inning, two and a half minutes per half inning? You can slice 30 seconds out of every half inning, save nine minutes. That makes a little bit of a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, I mean, that, it's kind of an unconventional way of thinking of it, but like a lot of people are thinking of changing the game itself. And you were kind of saying this. I don't know if that's the route that they should be going um, and maybe just trying to, um, I guess, limit some of the things that make it um, unattractive to people, kind of like the long commercials. Or the Dead, long time. Dead time. Dead exactly. time. I, I don't think I've got a huge problem with the – pitcher's clock, which in talking to people who've watched in the minor leagues, they say you don't even notice it. And in watching some minor league baseball the last few nights as the season's gotten started, you see how quick the game moves because the pitchers get the ball back, they throw, there's no waiting around. It keeps the game moving. It improves the pace of play. There's a difference between time of game and pace of play. People don't care if it's a long game, if it's exciting, if there's action. Yeah. But we played a game in Milwaukee a couple of years ago, and in the first inning, top and bottom, it took 36 minutes to play, and there were four balls in play in the entire first inning. That meant on average it went nine minutes between balls in play. That's not exciting. That's not compelling for anybody. You want the ball to play, not just walks and strikeouts. You want the ball in play. You want to see great defense. You want to see the athleticism. You want to see guys on base, stealing bases, making things happen, and uh, doing things that – speed up the pace of play and put more balls in play. I think we're going to do that. That sounds awesome. And, you know, we'll wrap it up with one final question. What advice do you have for young, young kids, young broadcasters that are trying to make it and become a sports broadcaster? I'll give you a few different pieces of advice. I think I've kind of alluded to some of this already. First is watch and listen to as many different broadcasters as you possibly can. Not just your hometown broadcasters, not just your favorite team's broadcasters. Here as many different styles as you possibly can. Begin with that. Number two, get out and broadcast games. You've got to get experience doing it. And in this day and age, you can record a game into your iPhone. You can go to a high school game and call it into your iPhone. You can set up uh, at a high school, at a college, doesn't have a broadcasting program, and you can do online broadcasts that you can put out to the world. You've got to get as much experience as possible doing it. Call as many different sports as possible. Become more versatile. Get that experience because you never know where the opportunity may come from for you when the time is right. Uh, and, and when you get really good, when you feel like, you know what, I feel pretty good about where I am right now. I'm not a, a finished product yet, but I've done a lot of this. I've got a little bit of a tape here that I think sounds pretty good. Don't be shy about reaching out to people in the business who you respect and asking for some constructive criticism because a lot of people are going to get back to you. Not all of them will. But a lot of people will get right back to you and say, hey, I listened to your stuff, and this is where I think you can improve. Uh, and, and one last thing, I think in this day and age, just about everybody wants to be on TV. People don't think about being on the radio. I kind of grew up at age 52 at the very back end of people who came up listening to baseball on the radio more than watching it on TV. That's how I fell in love with baseball on the radio. Even if your aspiration is to be on TV, I feel bad for you, but even if that's your aspiration – Cut your teeth by doing games on the radio. You've got to learn how to paint the picture, how to describe what you see, how to fill time, how to pace things out on radio. If you can do radio really well, it's easy to pull back and do TV. But if all you've done is TV, 
you can't then start doing radio. You don't learn how to do the description. You don't learn a lot of the intricacies of broadcasting. And, and I really think that's critical to do. So even if your goal is to be on TV, you got to break in doing as much radio as humanly possible.